You are listening to the Healing Migraines Naturally podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Caesar, and I'm helping women rediscover a migraine-free life. Today, I'm talking to Mary, who runs our awesome Facebook community about Raynaud syndrome and migraines. What do they have in common? Welcome, Mary. How are you? Hello, I'm doing good. Good. I'm going to Dr. Google so I can see. <laughs> uh-huh, right? Ray Nods. I'm going to get that wrong. I can guarantee it. Yeah, Ray <laughs> syndrome. And this is a syndrome that I'm sure this was named after Dr. Renaud. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> a lot of conditions are named after the doctor that saw the pattern. Mm. So in medicine, medicine is all about pattern recognition and our bodies generate symptoms in repeatable patterns, right? And this is prevalent throughout all of nature. All of nature is a series of pattern expressions. Medicine is sort of the art and science of recognizing the particular patterns that the human body expresses when it's not in a state of health. Mm -hmm. And we've got to put names on things. So a lot of things are named after the doctor that describe the pattern. Right. So I know we're going to go into Renaud's syndrome here, but I'm curious, just looking at, you know me, I went to Dr. Google Mm -hmm. and I'm like, I definitely have this because I Googled it, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Google, you know, you have, but I'm curious, like, does it have anything to do with arthritis as well? Just looking at the pictures, there's a lot of pictures that remind me of hands that are like arthritic. So can go into that whenever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question because In some ways, the symptoms of the phenomenon could feel like arthritis. Tell me what it is. What do we need to know about this? Raynaud syndrome, I had learned about this in naturopathic medical school, and I had never had a patient or a client with the syndrome until I started working exclusively with women with migraines. Interesting. Isn't it interesting? Women who are prone to migraines, there are other health conditions or other symptom patterns that are more prevalent than others, okay? Raynaud syndrome, I have discovered in my work, is fairly common amongst women with migraines. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Poor women with migraines, they're just they are so lucky. They just get everything, you know? I know. You get these other things along for the ride, right? Yes. So Raynaud syndrome in general affects women much more than men, just like migraines affects women much more than men. But like I say, I had never seen a case till I started working exclusively with women with migraines. It comes up pretty frequently. I haven't done a, an audit in preparation for the podcast, but I would say Probably one in 10 of my clients has Raynaud syndrome, and you can have it to a small degree. You can have it to a great degree. It's sort of a spectrum of severity. Mm -hmm. I would say about one in 10 of my clients have this phenomenon going on to some degree. So is it mostly just your hands get cold or like what's going on here? Raynaud's syndrome or Raynaud's phenomenon is where the circulation, usually in the hand, particularly in the fingers, Usually it's going to be kind of on the tips of the fingers or the distal end of the fingers. The circulation, so like the little capillaries in your fingers, they close off. And so you don't have any blood in the tips of your fingers because the capillaries have like closed off. And so the blood flow is prevent, you know, you can't get blood flow into the tips of your fingers then. 
And so when that happens, it can be excruciatingly painful. Mm. So this is kind of like, you know, if your foot falls asleep and you have that pins and needles sensation, it's somewhat like that, but can be on a way, way, way worse scale. Right. So if my fingertips are always cold, that doesn't automatically mean I've got Renaud's. No, that's a great question. Right. So even more frequently amongst women who are prone to migraines is cold hands and feet. Okay. That's very, very common. But Raynaud's phenomenon is a flaring and remitting condition, just like migraines are a flaring and remitting condition. So if your hands and feet are cold all the time, that's not Raynaud's. Raynaud's is where the capillaries go into, you know, you might call it like a spasm. Something gets kicked off where they close off and then the circulation is inhibited to the fingers. And then it remits, it resolves itself, and then the blood goes back into the hands and then you kind of go on with your life. It's sort of like a migraine attack in that way where, you know, you're up and at them, feeling fine, and then suddenly, boom, right? Something happens Mm -hmm. and then it remits, it goes away, and then you're kind of back to yourself again. So that's what Raynaud's is like. So what will kick it off is a stressor. Mm -hmm. It's possible for somebody to say, I don't know why this happened. Suddenly this phenomenon started to happen in my hands and I don't know why. But the most common thing that will kick it off is being exposed to cold. Your hands getting exposed to the cold, maybe like picking up ice cubes or it's wintertime and you're out in the cold. That's going to be the most common stressor that kicks it off. That kind of explains why, I guess, from a lay perspective, like every time I've heard of this syndrome, it's been like, oh, my my hands are cold. That probably mm-hmm. explains why <laughs> there's a connection there. I was interested about like, why do people always say, well, yeah, my hands are cold. I have this. They have Raynaud's. Yeah. So like, well, that's how frequently I've heard of it. Like, oh, my hands and toes are always cold. So therefore I have Raynaud's. But well, I think you have to blame Dr. Google for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Again, if your hands and feet are cold all the time, that's not mm-hmm. Renaud's. Okay. Yeah. It makes sense. I was just like, okay, now I understand why it's like a correlation. Like we all know that just because two things happen at the same time doesn't mean one causes the other, right? Yeah. Predominantly, it's being exposed to cold that will kick off the attack, but emotional stress can kick it off too. That's a possibility. I would say less common would be somebody having maybe an injury you know, I bumped my hand on something or, or that type of thing that might be uh, less common. Most common is people being exposed to the cold. I had a client that would have to wear like gloves in the office. Oh, yeah. When you think of getting exposed to the cold, you're not thinking that it's an air conditioned office, that level of cold. You were thinking like, oh, it's freezing outside. I mean, I've done the gloves in the office thing and that makes it really difficult for typing, but... <laughs> Yeah, let alone maybe you don't want to draw attention to yourself like that in the office. So what's going on with the phenomenon? Let's talk a little bit about the physiology. So when we are exposed to the cold, our circulatory system adapts and dilates the blood vessels to bring more blood to the cold area. So that's what's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. We are continuously getting exposed to changes in temperature. 
you know, now we have air conditioning and our cars are air conditioned and we are kind of bubble wrapped compared to how people used to be even a short time ago in this country. I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't have air conditioning, just kind of turned a fan on. So in this day and age, we're kind of bubble wrapped from the environment and changes in the temperature in the environment as it impacts our body. We're still experiencing temperature changes, right, that our body has to adapt to. Right. So as we are going into a hotter environment, the circulatory system is going to make changes to activate sweating or might move our blood around a little bit. If we're sitting out and we have our arm in the sun, our body might start to move the blood a little bit out of the arm, you know, like so that we're not heating up the blood. If we're exposed to something cold, the body's going to move the blood to that area to warm up that area. This is continuously happening. These reactions are generated by a complex set of biochemical signaling, which we don't fully understand. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we have a tremendous amount of knowledge of human physiology and biochemistry, but there's even more that we don't know. So some of these real minute adaptations that our body goes through, uh, we don't have the full picture on. Okay. But we know that the body is continuously moving the blood around, okay, to keep things in homeostasis, right? Keep the body temperature in balance. You know, if our hands are in ice water, our body is going to want to move the blood to the hands to keep them warm, okay? So with Raynaud syndrome, that phenomenon is not happening. And in fact, it's sort of like the opposite is happening because we have this constriction in the blood vessels where the cold area is instead of a dilation of the blood vessels to bring more blood in. Mm -hmm. So we know that we have a signaling problem. There seems to be some sort of signaling problem. The other thing that I think is interesting about the circulation, if we have our hands in ice water and the circulation, the circulatory system is responding appropriately, and the body starts to dilate those blood vessels to pull more blood into the hands, eventually the body is going to have a counter response, and it's going to start pulling the blood out of the hands. It can't keep the blood in the hands forever. You know, it's sort of like a wave. A wave comes in, a wave goes out. Our body can move the blood to an area for a little while, and then it's going to have to move it out again. Mm -hmm. And then that's going to require other biochemical signaling to make that happen. Okay. My suspicion with Raynaud's is that one of two things might be happening. And, you know, this one phenomenon might be happening to one person, and the other phenomenon might be happening to another person. But I think with Raynaud's, we likely have sort of a misfire in getting the circulatory system in the fingers to dilate, okay? And so there's like a misfiring where it's like, oh, I'm contracting instead. I'm like misreading the message. We have the vasculature not responding to the message properly, right? It's like doing the opposite. Or we might be having a phenomenon where the signal was sent and the signal was received and the body started to dilate the blood vessels to bring the blood into the hands, but then it immediately switched over to, oh, no, wait, I got to pull it out. And then it overreacted. 
So in normal physiology, as the blood in the vessels and the fingers dilate and blood comes in, it's going to slowly constrict again and slowly pump the blood out of the hands. And then a little while later, it's going to dilate again and pump the blood back into the hands. You're going to have kind of like this in and out wave going on versus with Raynaud's, what might be happening is that it might be instead of slowly coming in and out, you have just an abrupt constriction instead of that easy wave-like action. So we may have a situation, like I say, where it's the signals are not being read properly, the cells are not executing the instructions properly, or it's kind of jumping the gun on that constrictive process too soon, and then it can't get out of it, hmm. kind of gets stuck. That makes sense. But like I say, we don't yet know the exact signaling that's going on here at that level. We have to assume that it's going to involve hormones like adrenaline or noradrenaline, or they are called epinephrine or norepinephrine. Those are the two, we think of those as stress hormones, right? Adrenaline activates that fight or flight response. We call it a stress hormone. But adrenaline and noradrenaline, they signal to the vascular system to constrict. Okay. So we have to assume that those hormones are part of the signaling, but I suspect that there are other signals, you know, other signaling molecules that we don't know about yet. That's what's supposed to happen and is happening all the time. Our vascular system, especially at the capillary level, is continuously constricting, dilating, putting blood here, moving it out of there and putting, you know, moving it around, etc. That's totally normal. And when it's functioning properly, it just happens. We don't have any conscious control over it and we don't even think about it when we have that proper regulation. It's one of those things like you're, you're always saying, like we're not thinking consciously about it unless it's a problem. Exactly. There are actually some biofeedback techniques. I'm wondering if you're learning about these in your program, Mary, but there are some biofeedback techniques where people do learn to consciously move the blood into their hands, like warm their hands. Hmm. And so there are different biofeedback techniques where people do kind of connect their consciousness to some of these processes. But for most of us, we're not consciously aware of any of this going on. Right. Why would your capillaries in your fingers not be reading the signals that are being sent correctly? That's the question. Or if the capillaries in your fingers are dilating to bring blood to the area, why are they suddenly snapping shut again and pushing all of that blood out of your fingertips and then you're in agony? Right. Right. You know how painful it is when your foot falls asleep, right? It's like an agonizing, you know, 30 seconds to getting that blood back into your foot. Right. Right. Well, Raynaud's flares can last minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, right? Can you imagine how agonizing this is? Because when we don't have blood flow to a body part, it really hurts. Yeah. So when people develop this, they will do whatever they can to avoid setting this off. Again, does that sound familiar with migraines? Yeah. (laughs) Conditions that are flaring and remitting they're very insidious from a mental and emotional perspective because our mind does whatever it can to keep us out of pain. And this is a very, very painful flaring and remitting condition. So 
people can develop sort of a post-traumatic type response to Raynaud's phenomenon, just like they can develop that with migraines because of that flaring and remitting uh, nature of it. Mm -hmm. So to answer the question, why would this happen? Again, if you ask your medical doctor, why does this happen? You're going to get a look of, you know, why are you asking me this question? (laughs) Right. Right. I'm on clevelandclinic.org, the Cleveland Clinic website. They have a write-up on Raynaud's syndrome. So when you read the write-up, you're given the impression, you know, we don't know why this happens. Mm-hmm. Cleveland Clinic tells you to avoid Raynaud's triggers. So the word trigger is actually used for this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Avoiding Raynaud's triggers involves, according to Cleveland Clinic, becoming obsessive and anxiety-ridden about the temperatures that your hands are exposed to. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically the gist. It's almost a little bit victim-blaming, like, well, if you just avoid all these triggers, you won't have a problem. (laughs) Exactly. Better not go out in the cold. You know, well, you didn't keep your hands warm, you know, this type of thing. Again, it's like, I just want to be able to go out to my car in the wintertime and not worry about this like everybody else does. Yeah, imagine that. (laughs) Right? So you can see how similar it is to migraines. It's like, oh, well, why don't you wear sunglasses outside? It's like, are you kidding me? You know, oh, well, why don't you put gloves on? It's like, are you kidding me? That's great if you're outside, but for people that have to wear gloves in the office, that's a different thing. (laughs) Exactly. I have plenty of clients have gotten Renaud's flares wearing gloves. I mean, it's no guarantee. (laughs) Just like I've gotten plenty of migraines wearing sunglasses. I mean, you know, if that worked, nobody would have any problems. Right, right, right. So let's go back to the question, you know, why would this happen to somebody? Again, what I know to be true is that our body generates symptoms because we have some missing pieces. We have some deficiencies or we have some blockers that are preventing the proper functioning of a cell, of an organ, of a body part, of our whole body. Mm -hmm. Cleveland Clinic doesn't share that view. Conventional medicine does not have that view as to why we have symptoms of different things. In conventional medicine, you have symptoms because basically you're unlucky. You know, you drew the wrong cards out of the gene pool. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you just, we don't know why this happened to you. But what I know to be true is that there are three things that we need to maintain our health or restore our health if we're not feeling well. Okay. And I call these the three principles. They apply at a cellular level, an organ level, and a whole body level. The first principle, the first thing that we have to do is we have to get the nutrients that our cells need to every cell in the body. So you can imagine that we have our little hands going into the ice chest to get some ice. And as soon as our fingertips hit that cold, our body is going to spring into action and it's going to send some chemical messengers to the capillaries in our finger. Hey, you better dilate. We got to get more blood to the area. She's in the cold. Yeah. Those biochemical messengers are produced in the cells of the body And nutrients are used as the building blocks of those messenger molecules. So, for example, with adrenaline, if we don't have the nutrients we need to make adrenaline, it's not going to get made. 
The cells of our capillaries, they have little receptors. And those little receptors grab onto the molecular messengers and pull that little molecule into the cell so the message could be read. Or the little messenger will flip a little lever within that receptor and that sends the signal into the cell. Okay, I'm kind of using some analogies here, but you get the idea. In order for the receptor to be on the cell's surface, in order for the signal to be sent through the receptor, we have to have specific nutrients to make all that cellular signaling work. Right. Even to dilate the capillaries, you have to have nutrients to dilate the capillaries. They just don't dilate on their own, right? You don't sprinkle a little fairy dust on your capillaries and then they start to dilate. (laughs) Nutrients have to make those capillaries dilate. So for us to maintain extra blood flow to our fingertips when our fingertips get cold, a tremendous amount of nutrients are required in multiple areas of the body. We have to have flexible enough capillaries that can respond quickly. And so our cell membranes are made out of fatty acids. You have to have enough cholesterol in your cell membranes for the cell membranes to be flexible. How many people are on cholesterol-lowering medication that impacts their cholesterol metabolism? Mm, A lot. A lot. It's one of the most widely prescribed medications or statin drugs, right, that shut down your ability to produce cholesterol. And this leads many people to become actually cholesterol deficient at a cellular level, even though it may be high in the blood. Just because your cholesterol is high in the blood doesn't mean at a cellular level it's high. It could be low. Right. So if those capillaries, they might be getting the message. We might have the nutrients to make the messenger. We might have the nutrients for the cell receptor. We might have the nutrients to get the signal into the cell. But what if the cell membranes are not flexible enough to actually dilate the capillaries. Why would the cell membranes not be flexible enough? If they don't have enough cholesterol in them. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I'm with you now. (laughs) There's a lot of uh, nutritional things being thrown around. There's a ton of nutritional things. And, you know, there are many different types of fatty acids. So different fatty acids have to be in different proportions within the cell membranes. Fatty acids come from the fat that we eat in our food. How many people have been on low-fat diets? Oh, gosh, who hasn't? Right? Yeah. It's extremely complicated when we are looking at the capillary level, the capillary wall level, to execute this command to dilate the blood vessels. But throughout all of that complexity, we see that nutrients are required Mm -hmm. for every step of the process and different nutrients. The second principle is clearing metabolic waste material. When our cells do the work that they're supposed to do, they generate waste material, okay? Mm -hmm. So then we have to get that waste material out of the cell, back out into the bloodstream, and then our organs of detoxification process those molecules so that they can be eliminated from the body. So let's say, well, maybe we've got all the nutrients we need, but boy, these capillary cells are just full of waste material, full of trash. You can't even walk through the cell. There's so much trash laying around. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think those capillaries are going to be able to dilate appropriately with all that trash inside of them? Mm -mm. No, 
right? So even if we don't have a deficiency in the first principle, if there's so much clutter, the capillaries aren't going to be able to respond. It makes sense. So that could be a factor. The third principle is restoring our resiliency and vitality. So at the cellular level, vitality means voltage, okay? They have actually measured the voltage of a healthy cell or a cell that is functioning properly. Mm-hmm. And so we have to have adequate cellular voltage in order for the cell to have, right? You got to have energy, <laughs> right? We have a life force. We're alive. There's some energy within us and it's measurable at the cellular level. We have to have adequate energy for anything in the cell to run. So if we, if we have diminished voltage or diminished vitality within the cell, we may have the nutrients we need for all of the signaling. We may not have all of this clutter, okay? But if we're just at half voltage, we're not going to be able to execute 100%. We're only going to be able to execute 50%. Right. So these three principles that I talk about all the time on this podcast, they apply at a cellular level, an organ level, a whole body level, okay? And you can see how, even though we may not know, like in the case of Raynaud's, all of the specific molecular signaling that's involved, these three principles, we can see that these three principles are going to apply because they are universal principles. They are known universal principles that operate on every level of the body. Right. Basically, if those three principles haven't been addressed in your body, then you're even down to the teeny tiny cells and capillaries, they're not going to function properly. And then that's what makes the capillaries close off or shut off or not work properly. And then Mm -hmm. you end up with these debilitating pain in your fingertips as opposed to migraines, which is what we usually talk about. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And again, we are prone to particular symptom patterns. In general, these are hereditary. That's very obvious, right? Well, my grandmother had, had Raynaud's, my aunt has Raynaud's. I guess I'm doomed to Raynaud's. No, what's happened is, unfortunately, all three of you have deficiencies or blockers within these three principles, and all three of you have a disposition to show it with this symptom pattern. Mm, Okay. Right? Um, So we absolutely, we are predisposed genetically to express certain patterns, but that's not a death sentence. First, we have to fall out of a state of health. First, we have to have deficiencies within these three principles. And then our body lets us know that we have those deficiencies by generating the symptoms that we're predisposed to. Got it. The other factor for Raynaud's is that people may have another disease of their connective tissue. Okay. So our vascular system has all of this connective tissue. Okay, that wraps it. And so if we have a connective tissue disease, many times that's going to bleed over into the vascular system because there's so much connective tissue within the vascular system. People with autoimmune conditions that affect those systems are likely to get Raynaud's because if you have your immune system attacking part of your vascular system, attacking the connective tissue within your vascular system, 
why would your vascular system respond appropriately? That piece makes sense. And again, why do people have autoimmune conditions? This is a whole nother rabbit hole. (laughs) But people have autoimmune conditions because the immune system becomes confused and is viewing our body as an attacker, as a foreign material, right? The immune system is supposed to be able to discern, okay, is this a foreign bacteria or is this actually me, right? That's a major, major role of the immune system is to be able to discern what's a foreign invader and what's actually us. And so in autoimmune conditions, the immune system becomes so deficient. People think autoimmune conditions are like a excess of immune function? No, it's a deficiency in the discernment that the immune system is supposed to have. Typical autoimmune conditions that people will will have and then develop Raynaud's later would be things like lupus, scleroderma. And so as the immune system continues to attack the connective tissue in the vascular system, then they have more and more problems, obviously, regulating the vascular system. Can I go back to the whole triggers thing? Like you were talking about cold temperatures, Google mentions anxiety and stress. And then Mm -hmm. there was a question down here that was like, what foods should I avoid to avoid rainouts? And I was like, wait a minute. So, and we've been talking about nutrition a lot. Is there foods that we should avoid as quote unquote triggers for this syndrome? A typical thing that they will tell people not to consume would be caffeine. What foods are on the list that you see? It says to have an oily fish and plant-based alternatives, nuts and seeds. So omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids. I think that's what it's saying to, to eat, not to avoid. Avoid caffeine, alcohol, and get regular exercise. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. So caffeine, right? Caffeine is a molecule that contracts our vascular system. That's one of the effects. That advice is to avoid, right? You're going to avoid putting anything into your body that could further constrict your blood vessels. But that's not really addressing the cause. Uh, This is sort of like telling migraine sufferers not to have caffeine, right? It's like, well, everybody else can enjoy coffee. (laughs) Why can't I enjoy coffee? And we should be able to enjoy an appropriate serving of coffee. That's the rationale for caffeine. Now, alcohol, alcohol is an extremely potent toxin. Mm-hmm. When we're adding alcohol to the system, in my worldview, right, we're adding toxins into that second principle. If we're struggling with symptoms like Raynaud's, we know that somebody is not clearing their metabolic waste material or other toxins from the cells and from their body. So if we're going to add more toxins, especially a toxin like alcohol that's so potent, of course that's going to irritate. I mean, you can Google any health condition and they're going to tell you don't drink alcohol, right? Because it's, it's a poison. I mean, you can kill yourself if you drink too much alcohol. There's no smoking gun for Raynaud's. So again, we're just back to the same thing we've always talked about where avoiding certain things isn't fixing the problem and putting, you know, taking medicines isn't fixing the problem. It's just making it so we don't have the symptoms necessarily. Yeah. If you're already feeling bad, a great way to feel worse is to have a lot of alcohol Mm. or a lot of caffeine. I mean, caffeine is a very toxic molecule too. It's not as toxic as alcohol, but you can kill yourself with caffeine too, just like Mm -hmm. alcohol. I mean, 
tried. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Me, one of my kryptonites for a very long time. And I am on, gosh, I want to say eight months with no Diet Coke, no anything, like no Mountain Dew, no nothing. But good for you. That is fantastic. That is a very hard thing to get off of. It is. For me, like I get the whole, I don't drink coffee personally, but I get the coffee thing because it's the ritual. Like you just love having that ritual every day, right? And Oh, I sure do. (laughs) Yeah. It's not easy to give it up when it's like a chemical that you are used to and you enjoy the ritual. And you know what I mean? Like that's a, it's not an easy (laughs) feat to get rid of for sure. It is not. I am a major coffee addict. It is not the most widely used drug in the world for no reason. (laughs) Right? (laughs) In Utah, the ritual is a little bit more. We have, I think I told you this once, we have the equivalent of Starbucks, but for soda. You did tell me this. Yeah. So like my ritual was going and getting a Mountain Dew with different flavors. And then it turned into half Mountain Dew and half Monsters, which is an energy drink and the flavors. So yeah, it became a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Can I ask you, is that because within the Church of Latter-day Saints, coffee is frowned upon? Is that why this is so popular in Utah where there are so many LDS members? Yeah, very much so. Like, it's just one of those things like we choose not to drink coffee, coffee, tea, alcohol, that kind of thing. But we have oodles of other terrible habits. So it's not... (laughs) 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 <laughs> we have plenty of things that we need to abstain from, but we choose not to. So, <laughs> I guess I had assumed that the coffee prohibition was because of the caffeine, but it's not the caffeine that's prohibited. If you get people that are super, super, super strict religiously, like my grandfather wouldn't eat chocolate because of the caffeine. Gotcha. There is kind of some gray area of interpretation. That's how I'll put it. So, Gotcha. Gotcha. And it sounds like a lot of people are going with the uh, soda bar interpretation. (laughs) I personally, I'm like, that's a light gray area. Uh (laughs) But anyways, I guess my whole point is that, you know, some of these habits we have, like we are attached to, you know, physically and emotionally, and it's just not that easy to get rid of. So mm -mm, they're not. And, you know, we have to have enjoyable rituals in our lives. When I love that, when you always say we should be able to enjoy dinner out with our family, we should be able to enjoy occasional coffee or occasional sodas, whatever, right? Right. So, yeah, I I, um, went to a doctor last year that just recommended not being on caffeine at all. So that's why I went off of it. But, oh, painful. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a good thing that we're talking about this because this caffeine topic comes up so much amongst migraine sufferers. We can see the similarities between Raynaud's and migraines. Mm-hmm. And here we have this recommendation not to have caffeine with Raynaud's, right? So let me talk a little bit about caffeine. We might want to do a whole separate podcast on caffeine. I don't think we actually have. Caffeine, a glorious molecule, right? The most <laughs> widely used drug in the world. But caffeine is a molecule that, so so everything has to be detoxified, okay? All of our food and drink actually has to be detoxified. Everything that is put into the body or the body makes with its normal metabolism and functions has to be detoxified. 
This is a critical piece for people to understand. Okay. Detoxification is not just getting rid of the pesticides that are on your strawberries out of your body. Okay. We are continuously generating toxins. That's normal or metabolic waste material is what I like to call it. And then things like caffeine, it's technically a toxin. Okay. Our hormones, our estrogen and progesterone, after they do their cellular signaling, then they turn into waste material. So our hormones have to be detoxified. Everything has to be detoxified. Our broccoli has to be detoxified. When we eat broccoli, the nutrients in broccoli have to go through the liver first before they go into the bloodstream and they are detoxified by the liver before they go into our blood. So everything we consume has to be detoxified. Caffeine is a molecule that takes a lot of work to get it out of the body. The point of detoxification is to make little molecular changes so that the molecule can exit the body. So some little molecules just have to go through like one time before they, where they're changed, you know, just they need one little change and then they can leave the body. Caffeine is not one of those molecules. Estrogen is not one of those molecules. It has to go through multiple, multiple molecular changes before it can leave the body. Alcohol is the same way. This is why you can kill yourself with caffeine and alcohol. You can't really kill yourself with broccoli. I mean, I you probably could, basically <laughs> impossible. But caffeine and alcohol, you know, alcohol, you got to be really careful with. Caffeine, you know, every year there's some, you know, 19-year-old boys that nearly kill themselves with their monster drinks, okay? That's because... It's not just like a little change to the caffeine molecule and now it's now it can leave the body. It's got to keep going through the liver over and over again and make one change, another change, another change, another change before it can get out. So that can make it build up. That's why it can build up in your body because if you consume a whole bunch at once, your liver can't just make all of those changes at once. It's got to keep circulating and multiple times through, et cetera, et cetera. Every time that caffeine molecule goes through your liver, To get one little molecular change, the liver needs nutrients to make those molecular changes. (laughs) The liver then makes its own metabolic waste material when it does it. Your liver needs the right cellular voltage to make those changes, okay? So your liver has to be sufficient within all three of these principles in order to clear the caffeine that you drink, okay? The problem for most people, unless you're over-consuming caffeine, and this is why I say that we should be able to consume coffee in an appropriate serving size, okay? In this day and age, you guys don't have a Starbucks on every corner, but by me, I mean, I pass like three Starbucks anytime I leave the house. So in this day and age, we are over-serving ourselves coffee. Yeah. So we're putting a lot of caffeine in, but if we drink it appropriately, right, we can clear it from the body and then we can continue to enjoy it. But what's happening is people are over-consuming it and then let's face it, they're already deficient in these three principles and then they're consuming all of this caffeine and their liver is going, oh my goodness, right? I don't have the nutrients. I'm, I got my own waste material. My voltage is low. And then the caffeine builds up and builds up and builds up. And then it's a toxin. So then we're not going to feel good, Okay. We're going to need more and more caffeine to get an effect. All of these downstream things that we experience with caffeine, you know, what used to be six ounces turns into 12 ounces, turns into 24 ounces a day. There's an addictive nature to it that kind of drives us to overconsume as well. Like any addictive substance, we get driven to consume it more and more, then we mm. can't clear it from the body. So, 
all of this, if we're putting in too much caffeine, we're, we're draining the body's resources even more, just trying to get it out of the system. Mm-hmm. So and alcohol is even worse. Okay. So when people have, you know, when they're having symptoms, when they're having health concerns, yes, it can be appropriate. It can be a real good idea to stop drinking caffeine and alcohol until you get yourself replenished. And then if you're like me and you really like coffee and you want to be able to enjoy it, maintaining it at a reasonable serving size. Which none of us know what that is. So <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> Your reasonable is not the same as my reasonable, Leslie. Well, this is this is a thing, right? So you know when you go in an antique store and you see the teacups, how small they are? I avoid those things. <laughs> Right now we've got these, you know, you have a coffee mug. You can put a whole wine bottle in a coffee mug now, right? Right. You go in an antique store and people were sipping their coffee out of these little tiny teacups. Yeah. So a serving of coffee is actually six ounces. Mm. A tall Starbucks, right? The smallest size at a Starbucks is 12 ounces, Mm. twice as much. So a lot of people are afraid that if they work with me, I'm going to tell them that they can't drink coffee anymore. And that's not the case. I actually used to, you know, at at the beginning, I used to take everybody off their coffee for a period of time while they were healing. But I have found if we can wean people down, you never want to abruptly change your caffeine intake. Do not do that. If you're drinking 24 ounces of coffee a day, you do not want to go down to six ounces. In a cold turkey fashion, you want to wean yourself down as slow as you need to so that you don't have withdrawal symptoms. But if we can get people down to an actual serving of coffee per day, I find that people do, you know, 99% of people are going to do just fine. There, I will have an occasional client where they just can't do caffeine. They're too deficient and we just can't do the caffeine. But I have found that if we can get the caffeine down to an actual serving size, appropriate amount, people will do just fine. Yeah. We don't need to villainize caffeine completely, I guess. <laughs> I don't want to because I like to have my coffee every day. <laughs> right? You know, we've got to live our lives, for goodness sakes. We've got to have some things to look forward to. 100% agree. One of my mentors, the late, great Jim Sensenig, he would say to his students, you need three vices to be healthy. <laughs> I love and that. he would say, and chocolate doesn't count. I kind of have to go think about that. I don't, I'm not sure what else I got. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, but you know, that makes me like think of all of the cute little old people, you know, like you see in the news. So-and-so lived to 120 and says the secret to their longevity is, and it's always some like fighting with your siblings or what, you know, like some random. Right, whiskey, whiskey sours at 4 p.m. Uh, every day or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's always something random or like it. Or advice, it really is. So nobody's perfect. And (laughs) if we needed to be perfect to be in a state of health, I'd be still getting migraines. I would definitely be in trouble. This is my new vice. I'll give you guys my new vice. It's nerd gummy clusters. I'm so addicted to these. (laughs) Why? I feel like a child because I need my nerds every day. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we had a few little tangents there, but getting back to Raynaud's, right? It's sort of like, if you're not feeling well, it's kind of a no-brainer not to have alcohol and excessive caffeine. Again, a lot of this advice, it's like telling somebody to put a hat on when they go outside if they get migraines. It's like, well, duh, you know? 
It's not that helpful. That's the sad thing, though. It's like it is a duh, but it's also like one of the sometimes the hardest things to cut back. Like when I feel like garbage and I'm foggy brain and I'm I've got to get out and get something done and I just don't feel good. What do I want to reach for? A Mountain Dew. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like those are the crutches we use to help us get by. And then someone tells you, okay, but now you got to cut those out. <laughs> yeah. Not easy by any means. It's, yeah. It's not easy. And it makes people, I mean, makes people angry. Mm-hmm. I know I wasn't too happy when somebody told me to give up my Diet Coke. I'm like, that, but that's my joy in life. I mean, don't tell that to my children, but <laughs> that's what I live for. <laughs> right. It can be very challenging. It can be very challenging. For some people, it can be very easy for them to eliminate soda. And, you know, again, everybody knows that soda is not a health food, right? This isn't news to anybody being told this by their doctor that they should eliminate that. And for some people, it can be a piece of cake, eh, no big deal, right? For other people, you know, they might cry over it. Right. Some things are hard for some people and easy for others in everybody's healing journey, there's going to be hard things. Yeah. But those hard things are different person to person. In general, just having compassion for people. A oh, lot yeah. of people are like, well, gosh, what's the big deal? I, you know, I gave up my Diet Coke. I you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, I bet you, you have some things in your closet that are, you're hanging on to. Oh, for sure. You know? And um, it was definitely not easy for me. Like I'm not, I would not minimize that at all. It actually took me quite a few years to even work up the courage to try that. <laughs> so Yeah, no, I hear you totally. I hear you totally. We need to have compassion for ourselves too. Like you say, have compassion to other, for others, but also ourselves because all of these things are challenging and it's okay that it's hard for us. It is yeah. okay. I've had clients again, you know, everybody knows the diet soda is not a health food, but I have had clients over the years where they're not going to be able to cut out the diet soda. Mm-hmm. They're just, you know, like you said, it took you a couple of years even to get up the courage to do it. And mm-hmm. so I will occasionally have clients where, you know, they're not at the place where they can give up their diet soda. And so we continue the diet soda. We have to work at where we're at. We don't have a choice to, right. to do anything but that. Sometimes if uh, people are at that place in their life, it'll take them a little bit longer to fill up these deficiencies or blockers or missing pieces. Sometimes I feel like they move along just as quickly as anybody else. You know, that can be very uh, variable too from person to person. But yeah, sometimes people are just not in a space to make certain changes. And so we're we're still going to move forward with the changes that we can make because, uh, gosh, if I sat around until I was 100% ready to do something, I wouldn't have anything done. Yeah, for sure. Right? Because I'm like everybody else. You know, I have areas where I doubt myself or I have a fear, you know, gosh, I got to put myself out there in some sort of way. I'm just like everybody else. If we wait until every star aligns, we will never get anything done. So we have to just do what we can do and meet ourselves where we're at. And when we do that, and like you say, when we stop berating ourselves, when we stop criticizing ourselves and we just accept ourselves for where we're at and focus on what we can do, the body responds. Our life responds. Yeah, love that. I mean, this this is true in our relationships. This is true in our scholastics, in our careers. I'm. Mean, it's true for our health. You know, focus so much on what we can't do 
insecurities. Well, this isn't, you know, the, the stars aren't aligned. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I don't feel like I should do it now. It's a, lot, it's a lot of waste of time and opportunity. Instead, if we accept our limitations and change what we are able to, we can change. I've been thinking a lot about life and how it should be full of joy and not letting the limitations of ourselves or life in general limit our joy. I don't really know how else to explain that, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, we all have something in our lives, whether it's, you know, mental health or migraines or both, or, you know, family issues or whatnot, we still need to be able to have and experience joy, right? Yeah. How many of us won't allow ourselves to be happy until all the stars have aligned? Mm -hmm. I can't celebrate that because still X, Y, and Z is yet to be done. So, you know, it just feels hollow to celebrate this. How common is that? Super common. Right? I know my mom's always said growing up, we've got to get out of the mentality of I'll be happy when fill in the blank, right? Yes. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I will be happy when I'm done with my master's degree, but that's besides the point. No, I'm kidding. But yeah, it's important to be present and have joy in what you can now, for sure. Yeah, no, it's a great way to end. Thanks, Mary. Yeah, it was good talking and we'll see everybody soon. (laughs) All right, talk to you soon. And thank you for listening. Before you go, be sure to like this episode subscribe to this podcast, share with someone in your life who you think would benefit from this information. And if you want to stay connected with us, you can join my free Facebook group, Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar, ND, where over 10,000 women are rediscovering a migraine-free life. You can go to Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar, ND in the Facebook search bar or to healingmigrainesnaturally.com and we'll redirect you to the group.